This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, May 26th, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Mark Haxo. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. All right, today's scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his day like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there is a righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I command joy, excuse me, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the Word of God. All right, please be seated. Well, good morning once again, and uh, welcome to uh, Restoration Road. We're so glad you could join us this morning. Uh, We have been studying Ecclesiastes now for several months, and uh, now we are going to continue uh, that by studying the eighth chapter. As you know, Ecclesiastes is different from many of the books of the Bible. It's uh, what's referred to as wisdom literature. And there are, there are only five books in the Old Testament that are in that genre of wisdom literature. And they are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. But, uh, so that is what we're going to study. But let, let me pray before I begin. Would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Uh, everlasting Word. Uh, It is where we find uh, our connection to You. It is where we find what Your will is for us. 
and you have delivered your word to us, particularly this word, several thousand years ago. And we thank you this morning, Lord, that we can go to your word that was written so long ago and still find meaning and purpose for it in our lives today. I pray, Lord, that your word would uh, penetrate into our hearts, that it would have the intended effect upon each of us that you uh, know that we need. Whether we need encouragement this morning or whether there are idols that need to be shattered in our lives or whether there is other issues that we need conviction over, I pray, Lord, that you would use your word to do exactly that personally for each one of us because no, no two of us are exactly the same. No two of us walk exactly the same pathway. But we all walk under Your Lordship. We all walk under Your authority. And to this morning, Lord, we, we put ourselves under Your authority and submit to Your Word as it has been written and preserved for us. We ask that You would bless our gathering this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, before we begin... <clears throat> Chapter 8, let me summarize the first seven chapters. Everything in life is meaningless, vanity, and empty. All right, now we'll go on to chapter 8. Solomon had been given wisdom and wealth like no other. Uh, he, He had the opportunity to be able to live his life in a way that had no limits due to money or fame or power or ingenuity. He did everything that he could possibly think of to find meaning and purpose out of man's existence on this earth. He tried, uh, as we've heard in the, in the past seven chapters, he, he tried through, through uh, food and wine. He tried through, through um, uh, building great houses and, and, and amazing vineyards. and He built incredible gardens and parks. He tried through uh, owning uh, large quantities of labor. He had thousands of slaves. He had uh, huge flocks of herds of various animals. He had tons and tons of gold and silver. He was incredibly wealthy. He had his own uh, singers at his beck and call. And on top of all that, he had a thousand wives and concubines. But nothing that he tried brought him any real lasting joy. Nothing that he tried gave him any real sense of meaning or purpose on this earth. And at the end of the day, he concluded that it was all meaningless and it was all chasing after the wind. Now many of us, as Sam has alluded to in these past few weeks, may be tempted to think that we would be different than Solomon. That if we had more wisdom or wealth or vineyards or fruit trees, that somehow we would have true joy and contentment in the midst of all of that. But the universal truth that God is communicating to us through Solomon is that we're really no different. And and, and is that that true joy and peace can never come through experiences that this life has to offer, but only through our knowledge of an experience with God. And it is through this relationship with God uh, that we can have an eternal perspective and an understanding that this life is not all that there is. And that no matter what our experience in this lifetime is, we look forward to a future. A future life that will satisfy us in ways that this life never will. It is through this knowledge and understanding that we can have contentment in the lot that God has given us. That He's given each of us. That we can have joy and satisfaction through work 
and through something as simple as eating and drinking. While chapter 7 focused on the emptiness of wisdom, chapter 8, as you will see, focuses on the emptiness of power. Not only was Solomon the wisest and wealthiest king, he also as king had ultimate power in his land. Power is a lot like wealth in that many devote their lives in a quest for acquiring more of it. A person's hunger for power can be every bit as strong as a person's desire for money. Of course, we see that oftentimes money and power go together. Desire for power is what drives many in the corporate world and in the political world to do what they do. It is also known to be a very corrupting influence in the lives of those who, who actually get there and receive that kind of power. But in God's kingdom, in God's economy, power is not a virtue uh, to be pursued because we recognize that all power has been given to Jesus Christ. And, and uh, as such, we are His servants. In Jesus' incarnation, He emptied Himself of power so that He might show us how to submit to our Heavenly Father. He who has all power divested Himself of all of it while He was here on this earth to be our suffering servant in order to achieve for us salvation and eternal life. What we learn from this chapter is that we should use what wisdom we do have when facing uh, authorities in our lives. And we know that there's many different authorities that God has put into positions uh, over us. And uh, we also learn that uh, being the creation that we are, we don't know the future and are powerless oftentimes even in controlling the present. We learn that the world is full of injustice, and yet in the midst of it all, we can enjoy the gifts that God has given us. Finally, we will see at the end of this chapter how no one is so wise and so uh, amazing that they can know everything about God and His mysterious ways. The teacher begins by asking us a simple question. He says, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. Solomon delivers us to this truth, a truth that, that wisdom is a virtue. Through wisdom, we are able to interpret things. And he confirms that wisdom can have an effect on our very appearance by making our faces shine and changing the very hardness of our faces. But we know as we read through the Scriptures that wisdom is a God-given gift. I think that there's a certain amount of wisdom that God gives all of us, especially when we have been born again by the Spirit and have become new creations in Christ. I think that we have a spiritual wisdom and a godly wisdom that's given to all of us. But to some, He gives more wisdom than others. Certainly, we've seen that in the case of Solomon. But we, as we look through the Scriptures, we see that there are others as well. For example, Joseph and Daniel both had a wisdom and a special gift to be able to interpret dreams and visions and to discern exactly what it was that God was saying through them. There are many questions that we face today, particularly when we look around our world and see all of what is going on. Oh, how we wish that we were wise enough to be able to to uh, explain why certain things happen and, and why certain things don't happen and, and how things are going to turn out in the end. Though we know ultimately how things are going to turn out in the end because we read about it in the 
pages of the Bible, but uh, oftentimes we are left wondering. Solomon continues in verse 2 by saying, I, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, Where are you, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. It's interesting that most of the other English translations render that second verse as saying, keep the king's command because of your oath made before God, which sort of changes the meaning a little bit. And I think I like that translation a little bit better. In other words, we are to be obedient to our king or our governmental authority because God has commanded us to and because we have made an oath to God through our conversion, in our conversion, as we have become uh, Christ's own sons and daughters. But we have, uh, we have New Testament commands that are totally in line with what he's saying there. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And Peter also writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now one of the hardest concepts for us as Christians to face and believe is that God is the one who appoints all authorities. While it's easy to believe this when we have a wise and benevolent leader, it's rather difficult uh, during those times if we are being led by an evil tyrant. Now we're fortunate to be living during a time of history and, and even in the United States where the worst president we've ever had uh, is a saint compared to some of the despots in world history and human history. But our obedience to the king is based not on just our allegiance to the king, but to our allegiance to the king of kings. So unless we are being asked to violate God's law, the scriptures are clear that we are to obey or we will incur God's judgment. We are to be wise when we stand before a king, says Solomon. We are wise. We are to be wise when we stand before any and all authorities that God has put over us. Consider the foolish person who is pulled over by a police officer and disrespects the police officer and the authority that he represents. Now, he may have been able to get away with just a reminder or a warning or a minor traffic offense, but because of his disrespect and foolishness, he gets a free ride to jail. Or consider the fool who screams at his child's coach or at the referee because he didn't like a play or a call and gets escorted off the, uh, out of the game in front of his children and the other parents. Or consider the person who's crossing the Canadian border and decides to uh, resist the authority of a customs official, so instead of just passing through, gets to spend several more hours thoroughly getting their bags checked over. 
Maybe you have had some experience like this in your life where you've acted or behaved foolishly and have had to pay a consequence uh, as a result. I'm sure that we all have something like that in our past. But because our world is unjust and <clears throat> dangerous at times, Solomon teaches us uh, to use wisdom in order to survive. Uh, Jesus himself taught his disciples the very same thing when he said to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Sheep stand no chance against wolves physically, so all they have for their defense is to use wisdom. And that is how it is oftentimes for us when we are in the midst of this world. Solomon continues in verse 6 by saying, For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. As we were studying chapter 3, we learned that there is a time and a season for everything. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. But here Solomon states that a man's troubles lie heavy on him. Why is that? Well, he says because he doesn't know what the future holds and ultimately has no control over them. Even when he thinks he might have some control over the future, he is still troubled. I see this in our world a lot. Consider, consider the um, plight of those who are deeply concerned about uh, our, our environment. Um, consider those who are deeply concerned about climate change, for example. Whether or not climate change exists or whether or not it's human cause, not why I'm bringing that up. But um, whether or not, and also whether or not this, these, these people or these persons believe that humans can actually have any influence or not over future global temperatures, they often carry with them a heavy sense of doom. We have no power, the Bible tells us. Solomon tells us. We have no power over future events. We have oftentimes no power uh, over even the present. We have no power to retain the Spirit he says, or as another translation also puts it, we have no power to restrain the wind. We have no power over the day of our death. And this is the great equalizer among human beings, isn't it? Hank Hanegraaff, <clears throat> the Bible answer man, who I used to listen to on the radio years ago, used to say that the death rate is one per person. We're all going to make it. <clears throat> it doesn't matter who you are or how much money you have. It doesn't matter uh, how famous you are. The day will come when your spirit will depart from your body. You might have access to the best doctors. You might have access to the best medicine this world has to offer. And you won't be able to add another day to your life than what God has ordained for you. Every wicked king of the past who ever lived or whoever will live, uh, will have to eventually reckon with their own mortality in, in an acutely personal way. Every wealthy lord who ever violated the human rights of his subjects to build his own kingdom here on this earth 
has or will soon come to terms with the reality of his own death. But as Hank also used to say, the, the, the real pity is not uh, a short life uh, in and of itself. Because all of our lives are really quite short when compared to eternity. But the real shame is a long and robust life in earthly terms. Live for the advancement of your own kingdom, for your own purposes, for your own glory, without considering the glory or purpose of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And some folks make no plans for death. They make no plans for death because they hate the idea of death. They just don't want to think about it. As though not thinking about it will prolong its arrival. It certainly won't prevent it. Recently, I read a sad article about the death of late actress Doris Day. She's an older actress. She died at the age of 97, so I'd never seen anything in it with Doris Day. I'm way too young for that, but um, some of you people probably have and probably know who she was, but she, uh, th this was written about her. Um, it says, late actress Doris Day will have no funeral according to People magazine and a statement on her charity organization's website. Uh, Miss Day, who died of pneumonia on May 13th at the age of 97, didn't like death, her manager and close friend Bob Bashara told the magazine. She couldn't be with her animals if they had to be put down. She had difficulty accepting death, he added. The Doris Day Animal Foundation statement echoed that sentiment. Doris's wishes were that she would have no funeral or memorial service and no grave marker, the statement read. It's kind of sad because the reality is we all even if we don't like death, and I'm pretty sure none of us like death. Death is, uh, there's a reason why death is referred to in the Bible as our final enemy. We have to overcome it to get to the other side, to get to eternity. But at the same time, we shouldn't fear it and we shouldn't deny its existence because the reality is we are all going to be there one day. We are all going to take our last breath. We're all going to say goodbye to our family and friends one day. So, no matter how hard it is for us, we have to accept the fact that we are going to get to that place eventually. <clears throat> Solomon continues in verse 10 when he says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city when they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous said that this also is vanity. So this is uh, one of the frustrations that Solomon felt and experienced on his journey of discovery. It was this inequity and inequality that he describes in these verses. He, he's frustrated by the fact that the wicked masqueraded as righteous. They masquerade themselves as righteous people. And they go on about their business 
They're involved in the civic and the religious life of their communities. As they go about doing their good things, they are praised by people uh, for their good works. And then when they die, they have these elaborate funerals and, and people get up and talk all kinds of wonderful things about them. I'm sure you've probably experienced that yourself. You go to a funeral of somebody and you maybe thought after the funeral, I didn't realize that person was perfect. Because everything that was said about him was that he was such an amazing person. So if I, or when I die, and if any of you are ever at my funeral, please don't lie about who I was and say that I was this, this absolutely wonderful person. You can say that he was a sinner and he was saved by grace because of Christ. That would be okay. But uh, these wicked hypocrites that he's talking about were the same as the, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, weren't they? Jesus himself um, called them out oftentimes as being clean on the outside, but, but filthy and rotten on the inside. Of course, we see this truth in our, in, our, in our day and age. Wickedness and evil abound on earth today. There's no shortage of people who masquerade themselves as being really, really good people but inside they are uh, evil. Um, some more than others, for sure. And, and ultimately, we know that all, all of us are, without Jesus Christ, in that same exact spot. <clears throat> but uh, many of these people receive admiration and praise from, from the masses. And, and sometimes we as Christians, we can fall into that. And whether it's a, a politician or a movie star or a musician because maybe we like some of what they do, we might heap praise upon them, but at the same time, it's like, there are some pretty awful people that are producing some of this stuff. And we should probably be a little bit careful about, uh, about that. It can be frustrating for us too when we see uh, these, where there's wicked people that prosper and they live long lives. They don't seem to suffer any judgment during their lives here. And because of this, many others... Solomon says, will follow in their example and set their hearts to do evil as well. But, but Solomon is also wise to understand that while there may not be a speedy sentence for the wicked in this life, that the end result for them will not be good because they don't fear God. But for those who do fear God, he says, it will be well with them. But it was particularly an example of this type of injustice of the righteous suffering, the deeds of the wicked that brought us life, isn't it? Jesus Christ continues to be the best example of how a righteous person suffered in the place of the wicked for the wicked. He who knew no sin was nailed to a cross so that sinners like us could be restored to right relationship with the Father. So with Solomon, there seems to be some understanding that justice will take place in the end. But I don't think that Solomon has a complete understanding or picture of what that looks like. You know, Solomon lived well before the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus taught uh, very uh, specifically about what that would look like. Um, but Solomon's understanding of life after death was perhaps a little shallow. Uh, remember what he said way back in chapter 2. That was several months back probably when we did that, or a month or month and a half where he wrote uh, in verse 14 that the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. 
Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the, in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So his, uh, his perspective was, of course, that it doesn't matter how wise or how foolish you are, in the end you're all just going to die. But I do think that Solomon had, had a sense of that there is going to be uh, justice you know, at the end. But, you know, I think before Jesus came along, I think the understanding of what that looks like was limited. I'm not, I'm not saying they didn't believe it, but they didn't understand it. That's why it was so awesome when Jesus came, because he taught very specifically some of these truths. For example, when he was with his disciples, uh, in John chapter 5, verse 25, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here, or is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's talking about those who are spiritually dead will hear His voice and they will live. They will become alive again uh, in the Spirit. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear His voice. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All right, so we have a little bit of a picture of there's going to be a resurrection. There is going to be final justice. There's going to be final vindication for the righteous and judgment for the wicked. But I love the parable that Jesus also taught. And so I'm going to read the parable to you. It's a little bit longer, but I think it really is important for us to understand. And sometimes I think as Christians, we, we tend to forget and maybe not focus so much of our attention on what is the end result of all of this going to be? Because you know, we, sometimes we get so wrapped up in the cause for justice maybe in, in this life that we forget that no, that, that real justice will happen and real uh, uh, judgment will take place um, one day. So this is uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then in verse 36, the disciples demand an explanation. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples said to him, came to him and said, Explain to us the, the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. 
Son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. That's why it's never up to us to execute judgment. Vengeance and judgment belong to God. Nothing takes place on earth Nothing that takes place on earth goes unseen by God. Whether it's in a dimly lit, smoky back room or a well-lit boardroom or inside the secret place of a person's heart, God knows and He sees everything. He is therefore the perfect judge and knows not only the action, but He knows the motivation behind the action. Well, after Solomon expresses his frustration about the inequities of life, he yet sounds, uh, sounds yet again this familiar encouragement. I say familiar because it's the fourth time we've heard it now in the book of Ecclesiastes. In verse 15, he says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Not only is this the fourth time that Solomon gives us this commendation for joy in the book of Ecclesiastes, but in the chapters yet to come, we're going to hear it two more times. And uh, one of the things that I've learned over time is that whenever the Bible mentions something over and over again, we would be wise to pay attention because it's probably pretty important for us to understand this, this, this uh, concept. Um, we know that as we've studied uh, Ecclesiastes, Solomon had already tried both work, food, and wine uh, as a means of fulfillment and found them to be lacking. But, so why is he now commending them to us as true sources of joy and contentment? Well, I think that he finally realizes that you cannot separate God from the, the gifts from the gift giver. Um, that they are gifts from God meant to be received with gratitude and with thanksgiving. And that they can only give you joy in the moment when you already have joy in a right relationship with God. They cannot be enjoyed apart from Him. What Solomon had attempted earlier was finding meaning and joy in these things from God who gives these gifts for the enjoyment of all people. You don't have to be wealthy to enjoy these gifts. You don't have to be powerful to enjoy these gifts. God delights in giving these gifts to His children. So therefore, we ought to enjoy them and receive them with thankfulness and gratitude. You know, the early Christians understood this when they would gather together. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They would gather together to eat and drink and fellowship with one another. In so doing, they were living out what Paul wrote to the Corinthians where he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything that we do can bring God glory, especially when we receive the gifts that He gives us, when we receive them with gratitude and thanksgiving. Is there nothing better in this life sometimes than to gather together with family and with friends, to have a good meal, to enjoy a good glass of wine, to be able to um, 
you know, just have that type of community you know, around, around our dinner tables. I think that sometimes in the busyness and, and the uh, confusion of life, that is one of the greatest gifts that God gives us. Work itself is a gift. Although sometimes we hear about work spoken of as though it's a curse. Adam was given work to do before he fell into sin, so we know that work itself is a blessing. It was after the fall, however, that work became difficult. It's part of the curse that fell on Adam. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Despite the fact that work has become difficult because of the curse, it can still rightly be viewed as a gift. In fact, the ability to joy, enjoy the, the gifts of food and drink is very much tied to the work that God has given us to do. The harder you work, the better your food will taste. The thirstier you'll get and the better you'll sleep. I cannot help but to remind you also of another occasion in the Bible where these words were used incorrectly, I might add. Eat, drink, and be merry. Do you recall the parable of the rich fool? This is what Jesus taught His disciples in a parable, saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. This is in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, well, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Perhaps this rich man was familiar with these words from Ecclesiastes and had taken Solomon's advice to heart about eating and drinking and being full of joy. But because of an amazing harvest, he was able to lay aside many years' worth of crops. He wouldn't have to do a lick of work for many, many years. Yet he would have everything that he needed. Now Jesus condemned this man because he was not only selfish and lazy, but because he thought his idolatry of wealth would save him. His self-sufficiency is what led him down the path to believe that hoarding his wealth would enable him to live independent of anyone. It never occurred to him that God was the source of his wealth and that he ought to respond to his wealth not by building bigger barns, but by enlarging his generosity. With barns full of wealth, he could eat, drink, and be merry. That was his thought. But unfortunately for him, he never had the opportunity to enjoy it for long. Now I'm here to tell you that we have more in common with that rich fool than you believe. You might be thinking, oh, that rich fool, what a, what a knucklehead. Well, given the opportunity, I think that many of us may, not all of us, maybe not all of you, but maybe some of you, would respond uh, maybe in a similar fashion. Um, we have opportunities in our own lives where we can enlarge our own barns to fill them with the wealth that God is giving us. And oftentimes that is what we will choose to do in a you know, figurative sense. 
we will continue to invest our money farther and farther and farther, hoarding it for ourselves because we know one day we're going to retire and we want to have the most amazing retirement where we won't have to do anything. We won't have to rely on anybody. Honestly, we won't have to rely on God. We can just, we'll be just fine. I think that uh, this, this, um, this parable should really speak to all of us about how we are, how we're doing that, how we're doing, what we're doing with our money. But the other side of it is too, given the opportunity to receive a significantly large windfall of money, I think that many of us would probably say, yeah, I'll take it, I'll take it. You know, it could be several million dollars. I don't know if any of you play the lotto. I personally don't because, and I tell people all the time, I wouldn't want to win $362 million because it would ruin me because I'm no different than anybody else. It would probably make me a very selfish and ungrateful and self-sufficient and it, it, ruins, it, ruins, it ruins relationships. It causes all sorts of addictions and idolatries. And um, yeah, so if you've ever thought how wonderful it would be to win uh, millions of dollars, uh, banish that thought. It would be horrible for you. So don't play the lotto. It's actually... Uh, it, you're, you're just desiring to be rich. And the Bible says anybody who desires to be rich is a fool. So um, anyway, um, if joy, here's, the, here's, the, here's the, the main thing. If joy and contentment and generosity are not already apparent in your life uh, and with the present lot that you've been given, no amount of money, possessions, or power is going to change that. Because if you're not generous with the little that you have, if you're not full of joy with the little that you have, if you're not content with what you have, you can throw money, fame, power, everything else on top of it, and it will not get any better. It'll probably just get worse. Um, I want to share a story that I heard a long time ago, and, and you guys might be, some of you might be familiar with this. I think I heard it originally um, in someone's sermon on the radio or something. I couldn't remember exactly where I heard it, but I looked it up, and um, I have it here. I'm going to read it to you because I think it conveys sort of uh, an important message. It's called The uh, Businessman and the Fisherman. There was once a businessman who was sitting by a beach in a small Brazilian village. As he sat, he saw a Brazilian fisherman rowing a small boat toward the shore, having caught quite a few big fish. The businessman was impressed and asked the fisherman, how long did it take for you to catch that many fish? The fisherman replied, oh, just a short while. Then why don't you stay at sea longer and catch even more? The businessman was astonished. Oh, this is enough to feed my whole family, the fisherman said. The businessman then asked, so what do you do the rest of the day? The fisherman replied, well, I usually wake up early in the morning, go out to sea, catch a few fish, then I go back and play with my kids. In the afternoon, I take a nap with my wife, and evening comes, I join my buddies in the village for a drink. We play guitar, sing, and dance throughout the night. The businessman offered a suggestion to the fisherman. I am a PhD in business management. I could help you become a more successful person. From now on, you should spend much more time at sea and try to catch as many fish as possible. When you have saved enough money, you could buy a bigger boat and catch even more fish. Soon you will be able to afford to buy more boats, set up your own company, your own production plant for canned food and distribution network. By then, you will have moved out of this village to Sao Paulo, where you can set up headquarters to manage your other branches. Fisherman continues, and after that... Businessman laughs heartily. After that, you can live like a king in your own house. 
And when the time is right, you can go public and float your shares in the stock exchange and you will be rich, the fisherman asked. And after that, the businessman says, after that, you can finally retire. You can move to a house by the fishing village and wake up early in the morning, catch a few fish, and then return home to play with kids, have a nice afternoon nap with your wife. And when evening comes, you can join your buddies for a drink, play the guitar, sing and dance throughout the night. Fish, fisherman was puzzled. Well, isn't that what I'm doing now? <clears throat> Solomon began this chapter with a question. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? And he answers his own question at the end of the chapter. In verse 16 he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Solomon admits that there is much that we as human beings do not know and will never find out. There is a limit to our wisdom. Even as we attempt to understand spiritual truths, we cannot comprehend all the work of God. God says this very same thing through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. <clears throat> Paul also wrote the same thing in the, in, the, in the letter to the Romans where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Let me close with a few thoughts. Jesus Christ came as a baby, born in the most humbling of circumstances. He lived a quiet life until he began his public ministry. And for three years, he toured the Middle Eastern countryside, preaching and teaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding hungry people, and loving the unlovable. On the final day of his life, when he, was finally when he was finally experiencing personally the greatest injustice ever, he did not call upon the legion of angels that were at his disposal to rescue him. This is because he was living out what he knew to be his Father's will. That he suffer and die for the sins of his people, his church, for you and for me. He set aside his own power to accomplish us, for us this salvation. Before he ascended in heaven, he promised his disciples that he would one day return. And we know from the Scriptures, from what God tells us, that when He returns, He will not be coming in weakness, but He will be coming in power and in glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now I believe that His return is imminent, which means that He can return at any moment. Are you ready for His return? Or are you still clinging to your desire for power so that you can be the Lord of your own life? So that you won't have to bow the knee to anyone? Are you still on Solomon's quest to find meaning and purpose from idols and from experiences? Do you not know that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? I pray that you would today humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and confess 
your own powerlessness to save yourself and your inability to find true joy and meaning apart from Him. Confess and admit to Him your sins. Forsake your idols and humbly ask Him for forgiveness and receive by faith the free gift of salvation. Perhaps you've already done that. Perhaps you are one who has already received the promised salvation from God, but you have allowed your eyes to take in the idols of this world. And perhaps you have, uh, as Solomon did, you're trying to find meaning and purpose outside of God. The Bible promises that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that is the one thing we all need of more than anything is grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray.